Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome back to Luke's English Podcast, which is a podcast for learners of English around the world. You're now listening to part two of a special episode about English musician David Bowie, who died just a few days ago on the 10th of January 2016. The aim of this episode is to talk about David Bowie's significance as an artist, to consider some of the themes of his work, and to look at why so many people had such a strong emotional attachment to him and to his music. Hopefully, after listening to this episode, you'll be better able to have conversations about David Bowie, but also about art and culture in general. You can find almost everything that I'm saying transcribed on the page for this episode at teacherluke.co.uk. In part one, I talked about Bowie's career up until about the year 1975. So let's carry on in just a moment. But before that, I just want to say that since... I've re- since I recorded this episode, I've realised that there are lots of other things that I didn't mention. Uh, for example, I could have talked more about his first wife, Angie, and his second wife, Iman. They say that behind every great man, there's a great woman. If that's true, then Bowie must have had two great women in his life. And probably quite a lot of average ones as well, I expect. But anyway, joking aside, I'm sure that they had big parts to play in his life. And I hope they're all right um, after his death. It's hard for us to lose an artist that we love, but I can't imagine what it's like for his close family who must have cared about him in so many other ways. Anyway, let's now get back into this episode and I'll carry on from where I stopped last time in the mid-70s. So here we go. It's hard to explain everything that happened, I think, to David Bowie in the 1970s. It was a whirlwind. It must have been a whirlwind of different things and incredible music. Everything moved so fast for for him at that time. And he was really ahead of everyone else in terms of fashion. Bowie was very ahead of his time. Um, Around that era, he starred in a film called The Man Who Fell to Earth, directed by Nicholas Rogue. And in that, he plays the character of an alien who lands on Earth and attempts to make sense of the place. Um, And it was he was perfect for the part. And it's still a mesmerizing performance. He was a great actor, in fact. In the film, you can see that he's very thin and his otherworldliness and his vulnerability were perfect for the part of an alien alone on Earth. Um, so if you've seen under if you've seen another movie called Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson which is also about an alien on earth it, you may have seen that film it was released a couple of years ago it's really good uh, Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson or Scarlett Johansson I think is how you pronounce her name well th- that film I think borrowed a lot from The Man Who Fell to Earth and it's a similar sort of piece I, I think 
So why was David Bowie so thin? Why did he look so th- so thin, like a skeleton during that time? Well, really, it was because of his excessive lifestyle and his use of drugs during the period. And actually, it's it's quite incredible that he survived the mid-1970s. Um, and you can see that he was in quite a dark place at that time. There's a documentary film, which you can see on YouTube about him. It's called Cracked Actor. And in that documentary, you can just see footage of David Bowie in quite a paranoid state. Um, he seems to be quite badly affected by the, the lifestyle that he was leading. Um, and the this was partly due to the ravages of his rock and roll uh, lifestyle, the touring, the performing, uh, and and being a celebrity. They can have a weird effect on a person and they can be quite exhausting. But if you add drugs into the mix, then things can get seriously out of control. And apparently Bowie, uh, according to reports, Bowley, Bo- Bowley? Who's Bowley? I don't know. Uh, Bowie took a lot of cocaine during the 1970s, apparently. Um, and um, I'm just going to read something from an article here on a website called ultimaterockclassic.com, um, which will will describe something about his drug intake during that period. Um, I'm just loading the page on my on my computer, which is for some reason being slow. Okay, so this is from ultimaterockclassic.com and it says David Bowie took a lot of cocaine in the 70s. According to two musicians who worked with him, much of David Bowie's success in the 70s can be attributed to cocaine. Mm, Arguable. A new article makes note of the impact that the drug had on the rock legend's life and work. Now I'm going to stop there. The article is suggesting that, that cocaine was partly responsible for his success. Now, I think that's a slightly dangerous thing to say because um, it's a bit dangerous to try and suggest that cocaine can give you success like David Bowie. I don't think that's true. I think what coke can do for some of these artists is that it can give them the energy to be able to do their work. I don't think you can get the talent or abilities from it. I think that it's just something that can allow you to carry on. When, when you would otherwise get tired, if you're using drugs like that, sometimes you can carry on, but there are negative effects. Uh, I'll keep reading the article. Uh, the New York Post spoke to Carlos Alomar and Nile Rogers, with Nile Rogers saying, by the way, Nile Rogers is a famous music producer, you probably know. In or- Nile Rogers said about Bowie, in order for him to stay up all night and finish the tasks at hand, it was a huge factor, cocaine. Its function was to keep you alert, and that's what he was doing. It didn't stop his creativity at all. That said, Carlos Alomar admitted that it occasionally affected their concerts. If Bowie forgot a lyric, it fell to Alomar to pick up the lead vocal until the star could find his place in the song. Uh, Now, Bowie, who had once been described as a British newspaper... I'm still reading the article... Uh, Bowie, who had once been described by a British newspaper as old vacuum cleaner nose, gave up drugs in the late 1970s, but by then they'd already done some permanent damage. Nile Rogers, the chic mastermind who produced David Bowie's smash hit 1983 album Let's Dance, said, He told me that there are years of his life that he doesn't remember. He said, I know that's me singing on that record. I know that's my record and that's my picture, but I 
don't remember writing the songs and I don't remember going into the studio. Um, so, okay, that's a little description about David Bowie's drug use. So I think it did, I think he used cocaine mainly to help him work, but also probably because it was a lot of fun and it was just part and parcel of the lifestyle. I think probably cocaine can give artists a lot of energy. It just probably gives people a lot of energy, which allows allows you to keep working much more intensively and for longer periods than people who are not using it. But it comes with a price, of course, to your wallet, naturally, but also to your mental and physical condition. Not to mention the fact that also that it's a highly illegal uh, substance, uh, which brings with it its own sort of uh, dangers and, and difficulties. David Bowie, I don't believe he got involved in... I don't know if he was ever arrested for that. Um, but uh, but it, it certainly had a, a big impact, a negative impact on his mental and physical condition, uh, while also allowing him to work. Apparently, it's it's it is uh, incredibly habit forming and very difficult to break away from. And ultimately, if you continue to use cocaine, then eventually it will use you. Right now, there's a there's a, a quote. I don't know who said this quote but it's just in my mind and the quote goes sometimes you eat the bar and sometimes the bar eats you now I don't know where that quote comes from and I don't really know what the bar is in that case a chocolate bar sometimes you eat a chocolate bar sometimes the chocolate bar eats you anyway let's not let's not worry about what that really means uh, or let's not worry about what specifically what the word bar means um, in that quote. Um, I guess the whole quote means that you might use drugs, but eventually the drugs will start to use you. Okay. And I, 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 and I don't know what drugs will use you for. It's probably best not to let drugs use you or dictate your life because they will take you to bad places. We're talking about paranoia, um, weird eating habits, alcohol, obsessions, physical and mental degradation basically and I understand from stuff I've read that Bowie went through periods of extreme paranoia and uh, weird obsessions with things like the occult he started to believe things that uh, you know he started to believe stuff that wasn't necessarily true and was obsessed with certain dark thoughts Um, and uh, apparently he drank too much alcohol and it affected his diet as well because he was using cocaine so regularly, I think he got it into his head that he could only eat and consume certain types of food. Apparently, for a while, he lived pretty much exclusively on uh, milk, green peppers and cocaine. That's all he consumed for some time during his uh, during that period, uh, which is a... It sounds horrible, really, doesn't it? Check out some of his interviews and his TV appearances from that time and photos of him uh, in 1975. For example, pictures of him at the Grammy Awards with John Lennon and Yoko Ono in 1975. He looks so thin, he's almost like a skeleton. It's quite disturbing. He later described this period in his life as horrible. Okay, now imagine being so far out of your mind and yet so lost within yourself that all your demons are made real and are talking to you in persuasive, frightening and seductive voices. 
Apparently, Bowie was so disturbed and paranoid that he could only bear to eat certain foods, as I've mentioned. Um, it's amazing that he survived, actually. Uh, it really is. Um, I think that I think his problems at that time were not just drug-related, but also identity-related. Apparently, he had let the Ziggy Stardust persona take over his real life. He wasn't sure where Ziggy or Aladdin Sane ended and where David Bowie began. Because the lines between the character and the man became blurred. Reality and performance were all messed up and he lost a sense of who he really was. He must have nearly lost his grip on reality for a while. Again, he was like the astronaut spinning into deep space. Nevertheless, despite the craziness in his personal life at the time, he continued to make some of the best music of his career, and it's all there for us to listen to, like great albums such as Young Americans and Station to Station. Always such fantastic music and well-written songs. That's the bedrock of all of it. He wrote very good songs, and he was an expert at using the studio to create and produce those records. He combined appealing and popular music, which also contained some very complex and avant-garde elements, like crazy free-form piano solos here, some very unorthodox string arrangements there, some totally distinctive chord changes, and some incredibly versatile singing. Some people say Bowie couldn't sing, but it's not true. He had kind of a narrow sounding voice, but he used it in a lot of different ways and he could sing very low or very high. Sometimes he'd sing in a sort of Cockney accent and sometimes he'd use a posher, deeper and more distinguished voice. Um, I love trying to imitate David Bowie and imitate his voice. When I'm with my friends, and we've done this for years, sometimes we imitate people, we do impressions and... uh, I like to do a David Bowie impression. It's not brilliant, but everyone can do it. So there's the kind of, there's the, there's the sort of uh, the posh, deep, distinguished, I'm David Bowie, you know, that kind of thing. And then, then there's, I'm David Bowie. David Bowie sometimes sings like this. He sometimes does a sort of Cockney voice, you know, that kind of thing. And then he does the more serious, I'm David Bowie, you know, that kind of thing. I'm David Bowie. You can say anything you want to say when you sing like David Bowie. Um, So there's also the Berlin period, which came after the Thin White Duke period. Now, my dad, in his record collection, didn't have any records by David Bowie from 1975 until 1983. There was a gap. So I missed the whole Berlin period and I still haven't really explored that period of his music, which is on one hand terrible because who, who, how can I be a fan without really knowing those records in depth? But also it's great for me because I'm going to explore all those albums now. Um, recently, my uncle sent me three CDs. Well, not that recently, a, a couple of years ago, and they're still they're still here. I haven't really explored them yet, but I will. He sent me three CDs from that period. He, basically, I think he thought, right, Luke, it's time you listen to these albums. And so he just sent them to me. Um, and so he sent me Low, uh, Lodger and Heroes. And I'm going to feast on those, on those LPs. Okay. I'm going to stick them all on my MP3 player and I will walk around and I'll listen to Bowie in his Berlin period. Um, my uncle has always been good that way 
my uncle Nick. Uh, he's never been on the podcast. I'd love to have Nick on the podcast because he's a huge music lover and he's got lots of great stories to tell. He's met many famous musicians. He's met Paul McCartney. He's met Neil Young. He's met David Gilmore from Pink Floyd. He met Pete Townsend from The Who and kind of met Keith Moon, I think, if you can meet Keith Moon, really. Um uh, not anymore, obviously. But um, anyway, he's sort of brushed shoulders in some, to some extent, with some of these musicians, and he's attended like he he went to live concerts for many of these bands and stuff like that. So he's got loads of stories to tell. I'd love to have my uncle on the podcast at some point. Um, so, but he's always been good that way. My uncle Nick. Um, when I was sixteen, uh, Nick made me a tape. You know the way we used to make tapes for each other? We don't really do it anymore, ladies and gentlemen, do we? But that I used to love making tapes. I'd get I'd 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 write a list of all the songs I was going to make and I'd stick the tape in the tape machine and I would like, you know, so carefully choose all the tracks and produce like my own master work of of uh musical mixing and so the mixtape i used to make mixtapes all the time i still do some stuff and you can find some musical mixes on my website by the way uh go to the website and click just put the mouse over the word stuff in the menu and you'll see something that says music mixes click on that you can listen to some of my music mixes anyway when i was 16 uncle nick made me a tape uh, again, I thought he'd. I think he just decided. Right, I'm going to introduce my nephew to some proper music, uh, and I'm glad that he did because the tape had Jimi Hendrix, Neil Young, David Bowie, and the Clash on it. What an education! Um, and I used to listen to that tape all the time. I had the stuff that I'd discovered myself, but then I had the stuff from my uncle, and you know. I, I respected his opinion, so I really listened to it. Um, and my Uncle Nick saw Bowie perform live in concert three times. And at one of those performances, it was 1975 or 1976, and Nick was right at the front of the audience in, in at Wembley. He actually saw David Bowie performing as the Thin White Duke just a few metres away from him. It must have been incredible. I've been chatting with Nick a little bit via text and my brother, who's also a big fan. Um, and here are some of the things that my uncle said to me via text message just yesterday. So I'm just going to read out some of my uncle's texts. So he said to me, I feel, I feel really sad about it. This is, this is my uncle speaking, all right, via text. He said, I feel really sad about it, more than I can imagine for someone I never actually knew. Except, of course, I did, in a way, such a soundtrack throughout my adult life. The highlight for me was being near the front at Wembley Pool for the Thin White Duke, maybe the best concert we ever went to, the greatest artist of my generation. I saw him three times, but the Duke was the best, mainly also because we saw him swept away in the back of a huge black limousine after the gig. This little white genius in the back of this huge black car. And then I said to him, I'm about to do a podcast about Bowie, but I really don't know where to start. And Nick said to me, what you have to say is that part of his genius was the utter unpredictable nature. Each successive album was unique and different. You never knew what to expect. 
but it was always different and fascinating. He said, good luck with the podcast. I'm sure you'll manage it, but don't worry if you can't. It's such a huge subject. And I said to him, I'll do what I can. And then I said, didn't someone once say that art is never finished? It's just abandoned. I'm not saying my podcast is art or anything, but I think you know what I mean. And Nick said, yes, I do. I think you and David would have got on really well. And I said, oh man, what a thought. So, wow, actually I I was really touched by the idea that David and me would have got on with each other. Uh, So, uh, my brother also sent me a a little voice message with his thoughts. Um, So, I'm going to play you about 45 seconds of Jim Thompson talking about David Bowie. Here he is. Hi Luke, it's your brother James. Uh, You asked me to send you a quick message about my thoughts on the passing of David Bowie. What a sad day. David Bowie was and is a musical legend who uh, has many, many amazing albums behind him. He went through many periods of musical development, you could say, or um, evolution. And certainly his stuff throughout the well, late 60s, all through the 70s, at least into the mid-80s, is all amazingly good stuff. So dip into it. Um, I hope, Luke, you're going to include some videos at the bottom of this so people can listen for themselves. Rest in peace, David Bowie. Um, I will be leaving some videos at the bottom of this, um, on the page for this episode. You can check them out. By the way, also, you should go to the page because you'll find that a lot of what I'm saying here is transcribed uh, because I I simply had to prepare this in advance. Actually, I did try to do, like, I think it was the on the afternoon that I heard, you know, on that Monday afternoon, I actually switched my microphone on and I recorded about an hour uh, of, of podcast off the top of my head about David Bowie. Um... But uh, it, it, I, I was far too emotional, uh, which is surprising. I didn't expect to be emotional. I, I hope that you don't think that we're making too much of a big deal about this. Obviously, there are other things going on in the world, more important things that we should be devoting our time to. Um, but what can I say? I People ask me to record this episode. I'm doing it, and I feel like it's important. Um, but what was I saying? So I did do another episode, which was um, just a bit emotional and a bit too rambly and disorganized. Um, so I decided, no, I need to prepare this a bit more. So that's what you're getting in this one. I might, who knows, I might even somehow upload the other episode onto the page for this, it, just in case you, you, you hadn't got enough of me rambling on about David Bowie. Anyway, we're still in the history of David Bowie here, aren't we? So, uh, we're kind of in, um, I guess the mid 1970s, 1976. And, from 1976 to probably about 1980 or something, I think this is generally known as the Berlin period. And I think what happened here is that David Bowie decided to get out of Los Angeles because he was living in Los Angeles at the time. But, you know, he he was just lost in this in this sort of lifestyle. He decided to escape Los Angeles in order to get away from the drugs and the madness. And he moved to Berlin uh, with Iggy Pop. What a what a what a thing to do! Move to Berlin with Biggie with Iggy Pop. It's it's almost too good to be true, isn't it? Imagine what they must have what it must have been like. 
I wish I could have been a fly on the wall uh, at, at that time to just have a look at what it must have been like to see David Bowie and, inter- and Iggy Pop interacting. Um, I think that they believed that there would be no drugs in Berlin, and that may be the reason why they went. They thought, Let, where are we going to go? Surely there'll be no drugs in Berlin, because at that time, you know, uh, there was the 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 the, um, the, the wall and the Eastern Bloc, and so they assumed that it would be difficult to have access to drugs. But they were wrong, because apparently there was lots of heroin in Berlin. Bowie said that it was the hero. They discovered it was the heroin capital of Britain. Now, I I don't think that David Bowie used heroin, and I think that's. I'm very glad about that because I think heroin, we talked about cocaine and the dangers of cocaine, it's very serious, but I think heroin is the real killer and it must be avoided at all costs. Um, His friend Iggy Pop, whose real name I think is James Osterberg, Iggy Pop, he was a heroin addict. So I think that he may have succumbed to the temptation to take heroin if it was available there. I'm not sure. But for Bowie, Berlin was a chance to start piecing his life together again and work on new projects. He also apparently split from his wife, Angie, during this period. I haven't mentioned Angie Bowie, but during all the madness of the previous few years, he had married and had a child. And that child is now grown up. His his name is Duncan Jones, and he's a filmmaker who did a really great science fiction film not long ago called Moon, which is quite reminiscent of David Bowie's song, Space Oddity. So if, if you want to check out a good British science fiction film, check out Moon, uh, directed by Duncan Jones. It's great. It's really good. Anyway, Berlin was Bowie's attempt to begin again. And although it must have been a difficult and troubling time for him, it was also an extremely creative period. Um, some say that it's the peak of his career. But David Bowie had so many different peaks. Just pick one. Um, Berlin and the art scene there influenced him a lot and his his records from that period were a collaboration with Brian Eno and they have a totally different feel to the Thin White Duke period they're stark, sparse, quite lo-fi quite gritty, slightly depressing yet with an air of grounded optimism in fact and a sense of rebirth And it's amazing how he managed to change and find new creativity with each step. I think artists are always struggling to find that inspiration to be creative. You can't always manufacture the creative urge. It just comes to you and you have to try to put it into music or paint or whatever you're using. I'm amazed that Bowie managed to follow his creative muse so consistently and regularly throughout his life. He was really in touch with something a creative channel that most of us don't have access to. It makes us think it makes us think that David Bowie knew things that the rest of us don't know. Like he had access to some other information that we didn't have. I don't really understand all of that, but it's true of all great artists, I think, that they have direct access to something that we don't, and that they're able to put it into their art, and then we can have access to it too. And I feel like that about the Beatles and many other artists, people like Miles Davis and stuff. Um, so, yeah, the Berlin period, trying to get away from drugs. It must have been a difficult time about getting back to basics and finding finding out who he really was and, you know, finding a new creative output. 
then in 1980, there was another song called Ashes to Ashes, which he released along with a, a, a really sort of quite innovative and ahead of its time video, which got onto MTV in the early days of MTV. So Ashes to Ashes. I want to just tell you about Ashes to Ashes. I remember being really struck by Ashes to Ashes in 2003. In in 2003, I was struck by Ashes to Ashes. I was on a plane flying from Japan back to England and I was leaving Japan. I'd live, I'd been living in Japan for two years. I've talked about that in another episode called Sick in Japan. And just for me personally, it was an emotional moment because I was basically leaving my life in Japan behind all my friends and the, and the sort of life that I'd, I'd developed for myself. It was like leaving all of that behind and starting again. And I listened to, I found David Bowie's greatest hits on the in-flight entertainment and I listened to it and uh, for some reason it just really struck me because really the song is about letting the past, leave, letting the past go uh, and moving on and, it, and it's a strong song. So Ashes to Ashes was made by Bowie just after the Berlin period and it's way of saying goodbye is his way of saying goodbye to the 70s. For me, the song is incredible, especially when performed live. It has a really cool funk groove, first of all, but it also has some really weird and original chord changes and melodies. For me, the lyrics are about him looking at his recent past and deciding to put, in, and deciding to put it behind him. It's about letting the past be the past and moving on. Um, I, I really can't do justice in words to how poignant this song feels for me whenever I listen to it, like that time on the plane in Japan, well, uh, flying away from Japan. It just grabs my feelings, this song, and it throws them around all over the place. I, I, I don't want to sound pretentious. I really don't. That's just genuinely what the song does to me. I care about Ashes to Ashes in personal ways that I can't go into now. I love the strength of this in the song. I just, it, it gives me strength to it. Although it kind of makes me emotional, it gives me a strength as well. The fact that you can move on and change and that you're not defined by your past. Uh, that's what the song means to me. And I, I've, I find it incredibly brave and, and positive as well. Um, so, Back to my parents' record collection. My dad had another album called Let's Dance, which was released in 1983. And this is perhaps David Bowie's biggest commercial hit. It, it was produced by Niall Rogers. Uh, on the cover of the album, David Bowie was dressed as a boxer and is sort of throwing a punch. Um, and there are also some diagrams for dance steps. And I quite like the an analogy of boxing and music or boxing and dancing because dancing can be like fighting, you know, when you dance on your own, that is. It can be like sparring with your demons, if you like, you know, the, the, the movement of your feet and so on. It, it, it's kind of, there's a, there's a similarity there. Uh, Bowie was still in a suit in this period and he had bleached blonde hair when he was, you know, uh, in pictures and stuff. He, he still looked super cool as always. The production on Let's Dance is absolutely massive. It sounds incredible. It's so well produced. The vinyl as well was in much better condition. Maybe my dad had listened to that record a bit less because I think, you know, having kids and a job took up most of his time, understandably. 
Or maybe the technology had improved since then and vinyl records were just better made. But whatever it was, the record just seemed to be of premium quality. Let's Dance, the title track, just blew my socks off completely, and it still does. Another track called China Girl also sounded incredible. The musicianship was so tight. It was produced like an upfront commercial dance album by Nile Rodgers. And apparently David Bowie didn't really like it that much. I think it just didn't really match his artistic vision. But I love it because I love the work of Nile Rodgers. Think of think of records like Good Times by Chic or He's the Greatest Dancer by Sister Sledge and many other records. I just love the work of Nile Rodgers. And Nile Rodgers and David Bowie in combination, fantastic. It's a bit like David Bowie and John Lennon. Um, my dad told me once that he thought that China Girl was a song about heroin. And that was very intriguing to me because I thought, how could those romantic lyrics be about drugs, you know? And also, I was interested to know if Bowie had used heroin because I know how dangerous that drug is. If you if if you want to be convinced at the dangers of heroin, just watch the film Train Spotting, and you'll know what I mean. So it turns out that the song was written by Iggy Pop. It wasn't written by David Bowie, and that explains it because Iggy was the heroin addict. Listening to it, there's a lot of pain and despair in the lyrics. Bowie screams in pain including the line, it's in the whites of my eyes. The whites of your eyes or the white parts of your eyes. You're getting some eye vocabulary in this one, haven't, aren't you? You've got the, the pupil, which dilates, uh, and then there's the iris, which is the coloured part, and then the white, the whites of your eyes are the white parts of your eyes. And he screams in this song, it's in the whites of my eyes, to describe the depth of Iggy's drug addiction. That's scary, but it's also a pop song. In fact, the raw, upbeat power of the song pretty much overwhelms or almost overwhelms the dark sentiments of the lyrics. And maybe that's one of the reasons why Bowie wasn't so keen on it. Um, Since listening to that album as a teenager and throughout my life, I've learned that by 1983, Bowie had managed to get clean and he'd left his drug habit behind. And that was always really impressive to me. He always managed to maintain such distinction and class, even when he must have been feeling so terrible at times. He really kept it together, you know. There must have been some pretty dark and difficult periods, and I just really respect him for having the strength of mind to stop, to stop using drugs. Lesser people would have been destroyed by the lifestyle he had, but David Bowie was extraordinarily strong, it seems. Apparently, to, stay, to help him stay clean, Bowie had a tattoo on his leg uh, of the Serenity Prayer. The Serenity Prayer is, a, uh, is the common name for a prayer written by the American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. Okay, and so this is a poem which has been adopted by Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step programs. So basically, it's a poem which is used by addicts to help them get over their addiction. And the, the poem, the best known form of this poem is like this. And it goes, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. 
which means, I think, that he wanted to remember that he could never go back to using drugs or alcohol. I think that some addicts slip back into using when they think that they have the power to stop again. You know, they might think, okay, I'm clean. I'm going to use just a little bit because I know that I can get clean again. Right? They might be tempted to do that. But they have to remember that their drug addiction is something that they can't change. It will always be the same. That they can't just dip in. If they if they try a little bit, that's it. They'll fall back into the pit. So that's something that they can't change. They have to accept that. If you believe that you can control the addiction, you're wrong. But you can you can control yourself by choosing to stay clean. I think that's kind of what the, the Serenity poem is like. And it's just a, a sort of uh, um, a mantra which helps addicts to stay clean. Um, so it, it, for me, it's pretty impressive that he tattooed that onto his leg. You know, it just shows that he was really committed and strong-minded. So the 1980s were a slightly mixed period artistically for Bowie. I think he got his personal life together, but his art suffered a little bit. Fair enough, I think. You know, I think he deserved to have some happiness and stability for a while. And so what if some of his work in the late 1980s wasn't that great? I remember seeing him again in about 1986 or 1987 when, as a family, we went to the cinema to watch a film called Labyrinth. Now, uh, David Bowie played the bad guy in the film called Jareth, the Goblin King. Basically, it's a kind of fairy tale about a girl. It's a kind of dark fairy tale about a girl who goes on an adventure into a maze in order to rescue her baby brother who's been kidnapped by the Goblin King. So David Bowie's performance is pretty hilarious, really. It's, It's quite over the top and fun. He's dressed up in a very camp outfit with big hair and big tights. It's very 80s. He sings a couple of songs as well in the film. And I remember being a bit disturbed by the fact... I I remember being a bit disturbed by the film, but I don't know why, really. Um, Well, I didn't know why at the time. Watching it back more recently, I think I realised what it was. Okay, And to be honest, the disturbing part, to be honest, it was... David Bowie's trousers, okay? Um, they were... What was it about the trousers? Well, they were just a bit too tight. I mean, you could see everything, all right? The the trousers were so tight, they were basically... They were tights. You could see everything, right? Do you know what I mean? The film was supposed to be scary, and there were a few monsters in it, but really the most frightening monsters were on display under David's tight pants, Now, if you don't know what I'm getting at, then just watch the film and you might see what I mean. I'm not the only one to have made that observation, by the way. To be honest, it it was pretty difficult not to make the observation because it was kind of, well, everything was, you know, really quite uh, clearly outlined. Um, But apparently it was intentional. The director, in an interview, said that he wanted to create a villain who had, who was attractive and yet dangerous and had a sort of weird sexual allure that was also frightening like a rock star or something so that was intentional an intentional addition to the character these tight trousers but um i can't watch it now without noticing you know anyway david bowie came back again in the 1980s with another creative period um he reinvented himself as a kind of godfather of british rock music 
Uh, he wore an awesome jacket with a Union Jack on it, the British flag, and he collaborated with other people, like, for example, drum and bass artists like Goldie. For me, the rest of his career is interesting, but it's not quite as great as his early work in terms of his music. But he did lots of TV interviews and live performances, um, and many of them are on YouTube. Uh, I like to think of his later period, for me, as his interview period. But of course, he was involved in loads of other projects. There are plenty of things that I'm not mentioning here, just because it would be impossible to cover everything, of course. And you probably don't want to hear everything, do you? I mean, do you? Do you want to hear everything about David Bowie's trousers? You can watch Labyrinth and you will see everything, I promise you. One thing he did use was the internet to share his music, right from the beginning. Before most other artists or companies used the internet for publishing, he was doing it. He really had his finger on the pulse um, and he was always ahead of his time. Um, his TV interviews on YouTube are really great. Um, he was always really interesting to listen to. He was very thoughtful, intelligent and articulate and funny. Uh, he was really witty and had a fantastic sense of humour. And he wasn't afraid to make fun of himself. And that's perhaps, again, one of the other more attractive things about him. Um, he never, ever took himself too seriously. I think that's important. He was a huge epic rock star, but he never really lost perspective in the end. He took the art really seriously, but never himself. His attitude was so refreshing. There was really little evidence of him having a big ego. I think he probably knew what he wanted. He could probably be quite strict at times, um, but I don't think he had a big ego and there was no... There was no nonsense, I think, with him. Um, he had a characteristic voice and a way of speaking. As I've said, it's fun to do impressions of him. It's fun to do impressions of David Bowie because he sort of spoke a little bit like this. That's David Bowie starting to sing. Um, it's fun to do impressions of him, and many comedians have done uh, that over the years. My favourite impressions of David Bowie are done by... What's his name? Is his name Hugh Cornwell? Hold on, let me just check. No, it's Hugh Cornwell is the lead singer of The Stranglers. No, I'm talking about Phil Cornwall. Um, he is an actor, a comedian and an impressionist. And he did a brilliant impression of David Bowie. Uh, the 1970s Thin White Duke version of David Bowie. And David Bowie works in, I think he, so Stella Street was a great show. It was about uh, a town in England and it had, the, the street in that town was called Stella Street and it was populated by uh, celebrities. And it was two actors who played the parts of every single celebrity. And on the street, you had Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. You had David Bowie. You had Michael Caine. Uh, you had uh, uh, Al Pacino and um, Jack Nicholson and lots of other celebrities. And so basically, it was just an impressions show. And the David Bowie impression was just really fun. And also, the other impressions that I like of David Bowie are done by um, uh, uh, Adam and Joe, Adam and Joe, who are both Bowie obsessives, particularly Adam Buxton. Um, Adam and Joe do great Bowie impressions. So check out the page again for this episode to see videos with some Bowie impressions and to listen to a long documentary that Adam Buxton did about David Bowie. I think it's brilliant. So David Bowie released a few albums during the uh, the, two, the 2000s that were well received by critics, including uh, albums like Heathen and Reality. Then um, from about 
2005, 2006, I think he went a bit quiet for a while after he had a heart attack. He sort of disappeared from the media, didn't do any live performances. He sort of disappeared and went a bit quiet. We were worried about him a little bit. I remember my uncle saying, where's David? What's he, do- what's he doing? You think he's all right? We didn't know. So he disappeared, except a couple of media appearances to help promote his son's film, Moon. But then, more recently, just a, a couple of years ago, he came back with another album called The Next Day. And then, of course, just a week before his death, he released his final album called Black Star. And what's interesting about this last couple of albums is that he seems to be singing about his career as a whole, revisiting some of the themes, places and images that he created earlier in his earlier work. But what none of us predicted is that his latest album, Black Star, is actually about his mortality. And listening to it now, immediately after his death, the songs and videos take on a much deeper significance. That weird video that I saw on a Monday morning while I was eating my cornflakes, the video that was scary and I didn't understand, now makes a lot more sense in context. The album is very poignant and moving, and it's full of puzzles and enigmas that seem to express his experience of coming to terms with his own death and then dying, leaving us with a completed body of work. It really is the perfect ending to his career. Um, did I, I don't know if I, I just mentioned Cornflakes and Monday Morning. Have I already told that story? I can't remember. Anyway, just over a week ago, Bowie released his new album on his birthday. Lots of people were talking about it, and Bowie fans were excited as usual to get some more music to explore. We were all celebrating his return and wishing him a happy birthday. So when we heard about his death, it just came as a a painful shock. It was so unexpected because we had no warning. We had no idea that he was sick because he'd kept it secret from everyone except his close family. Now, it might seem like a small thing, but a new album of music from an artist that you love can make a difference to your life in subtle ways. Um, And as um, just, uh, what is it, a week before he died? Yeah, Here's here's my Monday morning story, okay? A week before he died, early on a dark Monday morning, while eating my cornflakes... I had watched the video to his song, Black Star. So this is a week before his death. Early Monday morning, probably about 7.30 in the morning. It was still dark outside. I was eating my cornflakes and I decided I'd check out the video for Black Star because it had just been released. I watched it and I found it to be really strange and quite frightening. Yet with an appealing and catching song in the middle of it. If you watch the video, you'll see it's creepy. It's really creepy. But just like many of, just like much of uh, Bowie's best work, it's both avant garde and poppy, but it's not really easy listening. It's quite dark and moody. But I like that because I don't think music should always be safe. You know, sometimes it should be challenging. It should be challenging to you sometimes, I think. Because if music is all just safe and easy, then it's kind of meaningless. Anyway, the video disturbed me a little bit, if I'm honest. Um, It was full of sort of nightmarish visions, and it seemed to be symbolic of something that I couldn't put my finger on 
at that moment. I went to work that day and put it to the back of my mind, you know, as you do, deciding to just come back and listen to the whole album later on at some point. Then a week later, a week passed, and so last Sunday evening came around. So this is last Sunday evening. I couldn't sleep. I just couldn't get to sleep, right? Now, that doesn't always happen to me. Usually I I get to sleep quite easily. I love sleeping. And, uh, you know, I normally get to sleep as soon as my head touches the pillow. But this was one of those nights when I just couldn't rest. And I don't know why. My mind was just wide awake and it was racing in lots of different directions at the same time. I found it very frustrating and annoying. Uh, And as I always do when that happens. Um, Especially if I have work the next day. And I, I just want to sleep, but my mind seems to be connected to something and it won't switch off. Perhaps I should have listened to my own sleep episode or tried the relaxation techniques that I talked about in that episode a few uh, episodes ago. But last Sunday evening, I, I just couldn't focus. And it was very disturbing to still be awake at 4am, just lying there in the darkness, wide awake with the stars in the sky outside, just staring into space, even though my eyes were closed. Eventually, I dropped off to sleep And I got a couple of hours, but I was feeling pretty delicate on Monday morning. I got about two hours sleep. You know how it is if you haven't slept. You tend to feel a little bit delicate, you know. So I had my cornflakes again like normal. Um, I have to get up extra early on Mondays in order to teach. I have classes early on Mondays. So I was up, you know, like 6.30. My wife was still sleeping peacefully. Uh, lucky her. Um, but uh, I had to go to work early. So I got to school, walked to school in the rain. It was cold and raining and miserable. Um, and I was feeling a bit of a mess. But I was holding it together, you know, on on two hours sleep. And I, I got to the teacher's room and I was getting my lessons prepared, just getting my stuff together. And someone came into the room One of the other teachers came into the room and he just said to me quite quickly, David Bowie's dead. And immediately my reaction was just to go, what? Like it felt sort of, I felt first of all, sort of angry. Like what? (laughs) You know, like, I don't know uh, what I can compare it to. Imagine if someone came in and said, your car's been stolen. You'd be like, what? Who's stolen my car? You know, it's like, how dare they? How dare he be dead? That was my first reaction. Like, what? You know, angry. Um, but uh, then immediately I was like, you know, I realised it was true. And I was like, oh, man, that's heavy. In fact, the news spread around the teacher's room pretty fast. Um, usually people are busy getting their lessons planned at that moment, at that time in the morning. But when Dylan, the teacher, said David Bowie's dead. Everyone just stopped. And it's hard to comprehend that someone is not, is just not in the world anymore, you know? It's, um, there's a period after, after someone has died and a period immediately afterwards where you just can't come to terms with it. It just doesn't compute. How can that person not exist anymore? How can David Bowie not, not exist anymore? He seemed to be so sort of... Uh, I don't know, omnipresent. 
And I felt a bit empty or something like that, you know, but then I had to go and teach. And during the classes that morning, when I wasn't interacting with my students, you know, in moments when I wasn't directly interacting with students and teaching, in those little moments, like, for example, when I was getting the CD prepared or when I turned away from the students to write on the board, it came back to me quite quickly and I got surprisingly emotional and had to try to get control of myself. Like, fair enough, I hadn't slept much, so I was feeling a bit weird anyway, but I'm, I'm still quite surprised at how moved I was. It was so unexpected. It's like David Bowie himself had punched me in the stomach. Apparently, he used to train as a boxer to keep fit. Well, apparently, he was still pretty fit because he laid a combination of punches on me that morning that I didn't expect. In those moments when I wasn't occupied by something else, I couldn't help thinking of the times when David Bowie's music was in my life. They were all key moments for me somehow, like being in the car with my dad, discovering new feelings as a teenager in the corner of the living room, dancing in a nightclub somewhere with girls, doing Bowie impressions with my best friends and singing a Bowie song to try to seduce my girlfriend, which worked, by the way. The song, if you're interested, the song is called The Prettiest Star. So all of those moments from my life struck me, but it wasn't, obviously I wasn't the only one, of course. I'm just talking about my personal experience just to give you an idea of how it felt for me. I can't speak for anyone else. But I know that millions of people around the world were feeling pretty much the same things as me at that moment. And later on, I thought about that scary video that I'd seen exactly a week before, and it made a lot more sense to me. Because Bowie knew what he was doing. He knew he was sick with cancer, and he knew that he was going to die. But he didn't tell the public. We had no idea. So he decided, I imagine probably very quickly to make this music and throw it in and throw into it all his feelings and experiences when confronted with his own mortality. Apparently he had six heart attacks in the year before his death while recording the album, but he kept fighting to finish the album so that he could die after it was finished. Wow. Apparently he was very close to the edge during the period when the album was due to be released, but he managed to time it somehow so that he would die a week after his birthday and the release of the album. Even his death was a flawlessly judged artistic act. Imagine my sleepless night, the frustration of not sleeping, the night before I found out that he died. That weird night, full of weird thoughts and fears that were passing through my head, and, and, and the frustration of just not being able to get to sleep. Now that was weird and annoying, and disturbing. But what must it be like to be lying in bed, not waiting for dawn, not waiting for the morning to come, but waiting for the end to arrive? What would you be thinking and feeling? I think Bowie has done a great job of expressing that in his music, in this album. It's scary, I know, all right? I know I, I know it's scary to think about that. And we're not going to think about it for very long, just a couple of minutes. And then we're going to think about happiness and light and all the wonderful things in the world but for a moment it's for a moment think about that and think about how scary it was and how scary the music is but it's powerful right 
this album, these, the song that I listened to in that video, it's not just morbid and depressing. There are moments where I feel he's in that song, there are moments I feel he's ecstatically happy as well. In the middle of the the, the darkness, he, he's. I'm sure he was at times full of joy, looking back on some of the victories and the amazing things that he'd done in his life. Also, the music is good. It's, it sounds great. It's got some bubbly electronic sounds and some jazz funk drumming and some soulful elements and sweeping string arrangements and saxophone. It's good music. But what's mind-blowing to me is that Bowie used his death as a way of delivering his art to us. That punch in the stomach that I experienced is a great way to get someone's attention. He really got my attention. And now he's got everyone's attention and we're all listening to to David Bowie's music again. And it's the perfect exit. I think he really left with a bang. Now what we have is a complete body of work with a distinct beginning and end, which makes it all the more powerful. And I'm sure that all his best music will stand the test of time. In 100 to 200 years or more, if we're all still here as a hum- as the human race or whatever, I think Bowie will still be considered one of the most influential and significant artists of this age. For me personally, I hope there will be many more moments coming in the future that I can share with David Bowie and his music, like the ones I had in the past. The man may be gone, but the artist remains, preserved in the music and in the images, and in our memories. Thank you, David Bowie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar, and pronunciation teaching from me, and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.